You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. For those who don't know who I am, my name is Royce. I'm one of the elders here at Red Sea. A number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I read a book, and if I remember correctly, the title was Failure, The Backdoor to Success. And its basic theme was that we can learn important life lessons from the failures we experience in life. And it was, it was helpful. It was helpful. Um, uh, I have since then, however, realized that the gospel is much more powerful we need to work on our timing a little bit, okay? When I go like this, that's when you hit the reverb. Okay. The gospel isn't the back door to success. The gospel's the front door to success. The front door to success. As we go continue on our, our uh, going through the book of Matthew, we're going through the scenes of the narrative of Jesus going to the cross as we head into Easter. And what appears today in this passage is that Jesus uh, apparently is, appears to be failing. He's, he's, things seem to be out of control. He seems to be weak in what's going on. Um, and yet that through that apparent failure and weakness, he's actually providing for us true life success. At the same time, the disciples, in going along with him, exert themselves trying to be strong, trying to, to uh, um, be, not be weak, and actually they uh, are just the opposite. And they actually actively contribute to our success. So what, do, what do I mean by that? Is it, this is a narrative a long time ago, but this series of events here have obviously a huge impact on us. Both of what Jesus does, but even his disciples. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, God uses people who are broken and hurting in his plan. And he used them on their way to the cross. And through this text we're going to look at today in Matthew 26, we see a contrast between Jesus and his disciples. And this contrast isn't the only thing that's there, but that tension between them is crucial. Jesus is in control of himself, and Jesus is in control of the events, even though it appears that he's not. And, and, and as he, also as he begins his intense suffering, though he's not nailed to the cross in today's passage, the suffering of the crucifixion begins for Jesus today. The disciples are actually out of control of themselves and out of control of the events, though they try to think that they are in control. And actually, because of their being out of control, it contributes to Jesus going to the cross. It contributes to Jesus going to the cross. So when I said that the disciples' failures indirectly help us in our failures, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that by God's design, the disciples help Jesus move towards the cross, as we'll see. And by God's design also, because of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, we can move towards Jesus in our failures. As we read, I want to begin by reading through the text. It's a fairly long text. We're going to be reading Matthew 26, 31 through 56. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of reading the God's Word. It'll be up on the screen if you want to read it in your Bibles. It'll be up on the screen. We're going to work through this, and then we're going to walk through this passage at length. Hear the word of the Lord for us on this day. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, 
though they fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you, will not fall, that you will not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put away, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? And at that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, do open our hearts. Send your Spirit, or we thank you that your Spirit is here. We ask that your Spirit move us, enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts so that we can understand the truth of the gospel, your love for us, your provision for us in Christ, and even counterintuitively, Lord, that we may even begin to see a glimpse of the intensity of Christ's suffering on our behalf. And may through that we understand even a little bit more of his generosity and his provision for us. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This is a continuation of the scenes beginning in Matthew 26, if you remember. They, we saw 
Jesus saying that he must go and be uh, uh, go to Jerusalem and Passover arrested. The chief priests and elders were scheming to arrest him. Uh, then Judas, and then Judas said uh, made arrangements to betray him. And then they went into the upper room and had, like we saw last week, Josh shared about the Lord's Supper. Today we pick up in verse 31. It's a continuous scene. These, these events are happening not in between weeks and uh, days. This is within hours, these things, a sequence of events are happening uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And we, we're told here that while they left the upper room and are going to the Garden of Gethsemane, in the process of walking, as they're going there, we see that Jesus is talking to them. He's instructing them. And he said, in, in anticipation of what's going to happen, he tells them some things that's going, to, that's going to take place. You notice, too, that the disciples, there were originally 12 disciples in the upper room, but now there's only 11 with him, 11. Judas has left to go do his uh, deed to plan the abduction of Jesus. But as we read this passage, as this beginning, as we saw in the first part, as they're walking along, he's talking, we see that Jesus is in control. Jesus' control. He's walking to what he knows will be an intense suffering, but as he does so, he's not out of control of himself or the events. We see this, first of all, like he tells them that they will fall away. He tells them ahead of time that they will fall away. In verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me on this night. He tells them what they're going to do, why they're going to do it, and when they're going to do it. Pretty specific. He's laying it right out there for them. He does not ask them, hey, do you guys think you can handle this? I think it's going to get a little rough. How are you guys doing? He doesn't ask them. He informs them that this will happen. Secondly, we see that Jesus not only informs of this, but he quotes a passage of Scripture just to reinforce what he's saying. He quotes a passage of Scripture, and his indication, the main reason he does that is so we understand, that he, they understand, that it's part of God's plan. That passage of Scripture is verse 31. For it is written that I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting most likely Zechariah 13.7, where it centers on the apostasy of the nation of Israel. They desert God, and by implication, the disciples are reenacting that falling away. That's what Jesus is saying. But the key thing to hear is, it is written. In other words, because you're going to fall away, because this is the reason the shepherd will be struck. Who's striking the shepherd? God is striking the shepherd. God is striking the shepherd. And God is the one who, because he strikes the shepherd, Jesus, in this, in this series of events, the sheep will scatter. They're scattering, but God is causing the scattering. Thirdly, we see that after Peter disagrees with Jesus, which is audacious in and of itself, uh, we, we, we look at, uh, which we'll look at in a minute, G, um, Jesus gets very specific with Peter. He gets very personal and specific with Peter. Verse 34 says, Truly I tell you that this very night, again, very specific, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He lays that out for Peter. Now Peter will not just fall away like the disciples. He won't just run away. But he'll be given a repeated opportunity not to. And he personally and very quickly, this very night, will repeatedly, three times, deny Jesus verbally. That's not a little thing. And Jesus wants him to know that. Jesus is in control. But uh, the disciples demonstrate that they fail to understand what is going on, again. And they fail to control themselves. They fail to stop and just think about what's going on and control themselves. We see this in verse 33. Peter answered him when he says, you're all going to fall away. Though they all fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. 
as I thought about this, I think Peter's response to Jesus is, is pretty, pretty audacious, pretty gutsy in three ways. First of all, he shows a self-confidence to the point of being arrogant, doesn't he? If they could all fall away, I am not going to do that, Jesus. I will never fall away, never fall away. And then the other thing he does, the second thing he does, is he throws the other disciples under the bus, doesn't he? He says, even though they might do this, they're losers, they're weak, but not me, not moi. And therefore, it won't happen to me. I'm sure they appreciated him pointing that out. He thought he was the exception. But the thing that makes this most audacious to me is the fact that Peter directly and purposely contradicts Jesus. He contradicts Jesus. Remember, Jesus spoke to them directly and even quotes Scripture. And, and Peter is basically saying, Jesus, you're saying this, but let me tell you the way it really is going to be. Let me tell you, Jesus, the way it's going to be for me. He's just coming directly against what Jesus said. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever said that to Jesus? Have you ever said that to the Word of God? I, would, I wish I could say that Peter is unique in this aspect, but he's not. He's not. Have you ever read something in the Scripture, maybe even Jesus' own words, and said to you something like, yeah, that, that may be true for other people, but it's not true for me. It's not true for me. I'm the exception. I'm the exception to this truth. I'm the exception to this biblical principle. My situation is different. I wish I could say that it's uncommon for Christians who th- think this way, but again, it's not. Too often, as we shepherd and elder people who face, whether they come to us asking for uh, help or whether we observe it and we interact with them, uh, they are faced with a clear teaching of Scripture, whether it's about relationships that they're having, about God's forget, excuse me, forgiveness for them, or whether it's about them forgiving other people, about sexual relationships, about financial stewardship, whether it's about destructive impact of a specific sin that they're wrestling with, whatever the case may be. All too often the response is when we say, hey, look, look, literally opening the Bible. Hey, look, this is what the Word says. This is what Jesus says. Well, yeah, it does say that, but it's not true for me. I'm the exception. It doesn't apply to me. My situation is different. Have you ever said that to yourself? Have you ever been reading the Scripture and said, yeah, I understand it. I'm not receiving it. Studying the scripture, maybe listening to a sermon. Yeah, I know what he said. I see it in the text, but that's not for me. One of the hazards of being a preacher is this very thing in two ways. One is not only do people sometimes respond to sermons we preach uh, tactfully saying something like, Good sermon, Royce, but for me, right? They have the exception to what I just finished saying or Josh finished saying. Or the more common one is, I just wish so-and-so was here to hear this. They really needed this, right? Implying what? I didn't really need it. They do. Is this going to be online so they can listen to it? (laughs) Yes, and you should do again, too. The other thing that, and I've said this here from the, up here a, a number of times, actually this year, In preaching, we not only prepare the message for this place on Sunday morning, but we have to preach to ourselves all throughout the week. 
as we do our exegesis, as we study, we have to preach to ourselves and we constantly have to be on guard with the attitude, well, this is for them on Sunday, but it's not for us. Josh and I have to constantly throughout the week, uh, is there unbelief that we need to repent of? Is there disobedience that we need to repent of? I've said this before, the two guys in, in Red Sea who are changed the most by our preaching is the two of us. Because we constantly wrestle with what we do, and we can't, we don't, we don't are not offered or allowed to say, yeah, but it's true for them, but not us. Then we don't get, we're disqualified to getting up here and saying that. The point is, are you like Peter? And when something scripturally is point blank is said to you, you say, yeah, that's true, but it's not for me. It's a dangerous place for us to be. And after Jesus tells Peter uh, he will deny him three times, Peter, Peter does not yield. He does not yield, does he? Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all disciples said the same. Peter's self-confidence does not lag, even when he's corrected directly by Jesus. Here's an irony here. He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And in reality, the exact opposite happens. Because he denies Jesus three times, he will not die with Jesus. And, of course, it says, Matthew wants us to understand, Peter is not unique. Of the 11, 11 agree. They all agree. It says in there, and all the disciples said the same thing. Matthew records Peter's words, but they all said the same thing. The self-confidence is not unique to Peter, after all. In this section here, we see that Jesus is controlled, but the disciples are not. The conversation with Jesus is the beginning of the disciples being distracted from Jesus. Uh, there, this is, this, this denial that Peter, this interaction appeal and their agreement is the first step of their falling away. They take a step. In this moment, they take a step away from Jesus. As we progressively move, they move away, Jesus becomes increasingly isolated. Jesus will bear the intense suffering all alone as we'll see more clearly in the next passage. In the next passage, the next scene we have here, they have arrived in Gethsemane to pray, and um, Jesus goes up there, and he, they get in there. He finishes saying, uh, he tells, he tells uh, eight of them to sit down. He takes three, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he goes off to a side, and he prays with them. He says to you guys, pray. And we see in the scene is repetitious. Three times, Jesus says, I want you guys to pray with me. And he goes off a little bit away from them, and he's in anguish. We'll look at it in a minute. And then he prays. He comes back. They're asleep. It happens three times. Three times, Jesus prays in anguish. He's suffering. Three times, he's asked the disciples to help him, and they fall asleep. Jesus takes 11 into the Garden of Gethsemane, but now Matthew wants us to know that that 11 is now down to three. He's now down to three. Peter, James, and John are with him during this time of suffering. Again, we see in this passage that Jesus is in control. This is especially important because as we see in the verse describing his suffering for our sin, and it begins here, he's doing it so on behalf of the people. And although he will be literally nailed to the cross later on in this narrative, let's let's not misunderstand that the suffering for our sin begins now. His suffering for our sin begins now in this time of prayer. It's easy to miss that. The crucifixion, crucifixion, biblically, theologically, begins here. In verse 37, the second half, he says, 
he began Jesus' control. And so this is that part of his control. And he's wrestling with this. I want to look at that first. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus' emotions as a human now, the intensity, begin to show. And although this unique God-man, his human side, feels the intense emotions, the dread, the horror of what he knows is coming. And is now he's beginning to experience And in verse 38, he says, And then he said to them, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Even unto death. Even in a short period of time, the intensity of his emotions dramatically increase. And the more he prays, the more the intensity increases. It's not a fear of death, like, oh, this is going to kill me fear, like we might have. This is the nearness of the intensity of pain of bearing sin and separation from the Father, which is really death. Verse 39, we see that he's still in control. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus goes to be alone with the Father. He has his disciples there with him. He asks the three to pray for him, pray with him. He goes away and is face to face with the Father. And he falls down. Matthew wants us to understand his posture wasn't like I pray, pacing around all over the place. He fell face down as an act of worship, as an act of submission. Jesus is feeling the intensity that much. Matthew records for us the essence of Jesus' prayer. I don't think this is all Jesus said. During the garden is probably a couple hours period of time. We don't know exactly, but the indicators, which we're not going to walk through, the indicators seem to think this was going on for a couple hours as he's praying, going back and forth to the disciples. And he's, and he's praying, my father, if this possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. What, what cup? What cup? What is he referring to? Matthew has already, Jesus has already talked about this, but he's probably quoting this number of passages in the Old Testament that talk about a cup. That, that God is, has. In Isaiah 51, 17, he says, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. It's probably what Jesus is referring to. This cup of your wrath I'm about to drink of. Jesus is very aware of his vicarious death. He's not there for himself. He's there for other people. If there is any other options, he's saying honestly to the Father, this would be a good time to consider them. We can stop now. I've suffered enough. But the Father says, there's not. This is the plan. And we should, he would like to avoid the, Jesus would like to avoid the incredible physical and emotional and spiritual suffering that he's now coming into. But he is submissive to the Father's will, completely submissive to the Father's will. Not as I will, but as you will. And this isn't just a theme of Jesus' prayer we know from here. He didn't just come up with this now. This is the theme of Jesus' prayer throughout his entire life. As he prayed to the Father through his entire life, it was, the theme of that would be, Lord, not my will, but your will. As I walk among the sinners, as I live, as I do miracles, as I do all, do all those things that I do, not my will, but your will. And as I was thinking about that being, the essence, a summary of Jesus' prayer life, I kind of pushed back on myself and said, is this a summary of my prayer life? Or is it more of a checklist of what I have for God to do on my behalf? 
I started thinking about this as I have my time of prayer in the morning. Uh, I, I often, I don't do it every, every morning, but in my routine, I roll through the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis. If you remember the Lord's Prayer, we often can recite it because we recite it in churches. But Jesus said, they asked for a pattern of prayer, and he said, here's how to pray. Because I think this is how he prayed. Parts of these things, not all of it. And he says, pray like this in Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just something for us to recite. It's something to pray for our day. Lord, I'm praying this day that your will be done. Just like it is in heaven, but it will be done on this day, my day. That, Lord, your will be done in me. That your will be done through me. And your will will even be done by me. If that is a part of our ongoing prayer, and we pray and constantly do that, then when it does come to a time of crisis, whether it's suffering or a big decision or some, some event that is just overwhelming to us and we're not sure how to pray, we will fall back on the habit of praying we always pray. Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. And we'll have a lot more clarity, like Jesus did. Or, we pray, or do we pray like, like Peter did? God, I, I know your will through the scriptures, but let me tell you the way it should be instead. That's not the way Jesus prayed. So I, I, as I wrestled with this, I wrestled with the Jesus' pattern of prayer. The confidence he has in the Father is the confidence he's had in his whole life. He, he learned that as he learned obedience, we're told in the scripture. We need to keep moving. Verse 42, he says, again, a second time he went and prayed. He said, Father, if this cup cannot pass for me, pass unless I drink it, it'll be done. Uh, he flips the wording. He reverses it. Okay, may, <laughs> I, this is my facetiousness. Okay, Lord, just in case you didn't understand the first request, I'll reverse it and ask it a different way. Maybe I'll get a different answer. He still got the answer no, by the way, okay? He reverses the, he changes the wording. Verse 44, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same things again. Repetition of Jesus shows his emphasis, shows the theme of what he's doing, shows his obedience, shows his submission, shows the importance of what he's wrestling with. And then, see the hours at hand, verse 45, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And here's the irony of that, as he's been suffering and praying and saying, Lord, you know, if there's any other way to do this, but I'm going to do the way you planned it, your will. And then he ends this, this section by saying, that uh, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. In other words, the judge of sinners is about to get judged by sinners. And that's the irony. He knows the judge of sinners, as we saw in, in, earlier in Matthew, will be judged by sinners. As intense as his suffering here in the Garden of Gethsemane is, Jesus knew it was going, going to get a lot worse. Um, and let's not move too quickly to the cross and overlook what's, what's happening here. In his book, Christ Crucified, uh, Donald, I think it's pronounced McLeod, makes a very insightful observation. This was helpful to me. I read this recently as I'm reading through some books on the crucifixion. He says, Gethsemane is an anticipation of adversity. Jesus praying there is an anticipation of adversity. An apprehension of the awfulness of what what is still unknown. The imagination of Jesus fixes on it. But in its unfolding, it will be even more dreadful than the worst forebodings of his imagination. 
And there is, besides, the crushing weight of responsibility. That was intriguing to me. Did you hear what he's saying there? The horrible events that Jesus is anticipating have never happened before, even for God. Jesus has to use his imagination to anticipate what's happening, right? The wrath of God has never been poured out on the Son. The Son has never been separated from the Father. This event that's happening is the epicenter, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is the epicenter not only of human history, but of eternity. It's a unique event. It's never happened. Jesus can't bank on, I've done this before, I'll do it again. He's never done it before. He will never do it again. It's unique in that way. He has to use, and I was fascinated by it, he has to use his imagination. He's anticipating, and the author of Christ Crucified says, even his imagination could not comprehend how horrible it actually is going to be. He can anticipate, but he still doesn't know how horrible it's going to be. Jesus had no experience, no reference point to which compare it. McLeod continues, he says, but Gethsemane is more than just dread of suffering. It is itself suffering, part of the road that he had to walk and part of the price he had to pay, part indeed of the cup itself. Part indeed of the cup itself. In the book of Hebrews, he says, author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, which we've already talked about. And though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In Gethsemane, Jesus was in control even as he entered into the much dreaded suffering. But what were his disciples doing? Well, before we look at what they were doing, let's look at what Jesus asked them to do. What did Jesus ask them to do? In verse 37, he came to them, the three, the three disciples, and said, I'm sorrowful, and he said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, he doesn't mean watch for the bad guys. He doesn't mean stand guard looking out for Judas. We already know. We've looked at this word before. He means watch, be vigilant in prayer, be prepared, be ready for what's going to happen. But he asked, watch with me, be prepared. I want you to pray, in essence, with me and for me. This is, this is kind of mind-boggling. Jesus, God himself, asked for, and even by his three-time repetition, begs for his disciples to pray for him. That's how bad off he was. Jesus is increasingly feeling alone. The dreaded events are coming. So he asked the only people he could to pray for him, his disciples, And he picked the three that he had the closest relationship with and said, I need you guys to focus. I need you to pray with me. And we obviously told explicitly how they responded. And in verse 40, and he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, and I think intentionally, obviously, to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? I don't know if Jesus had the sarcasm in his voice, but he does when I read it, okay? Verse 43, and again, he came to them, found them sleeping with his eyes very heavy. And then we know he comes a third time. In fact, Jesus prays three times, his own, comes back, and Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep all three times. All three times. Even if 
we were the, and I think, if we were the first readers of Matthew's book, as we were reading through it the first time, and we just finished Peter's denial, of, uh, saying, I'm not going to do it, and Jesus said, you deny me three times. And then the very next section, we read that Jesus has fallen asleep, but Jesus has asked him to, Peter has fallen asleep, but Jesus has asked him to do something. I think we might think these are the three times that Peter denies him. It's that significant. Now, we know, we've read ahead, right? We know there's more to come next week. But he is there. And this event immediately follows the prediction. It's sort of like a warm-up failure, you know? He, he got there, and Peter, could you not even stay away? I didn't ask you not to die. I asked you not to sleep. And you couldn't even do that. And in all fairness, Matthew gives the commentary, for their eyes were heavy, okay? They're, they're physically limited. They're exhausted. They're emotionally, spiritually, physically, maybe even out of fear. They're exhausted. However, that's it is. And again, there's irony here. The man who said he was ready to die for Jesus, who never deny him, uh, did not have the physical and emotional energy even to stay awake to pray for Jesus. Jesus was suffering for them, but they could not help him. They could not help him. He was on his own. They couldn't even stay awake. More and more, even while Jesus prayed, and he specifically asked for help, the disciples are unable to help him. He's more isolated. And then in verse 46, he says, let us get going. See, the betrayer is at hand. So he ends that and goes. Then in verses 47 through 56, we have another scene. It quickly ends. He says, let's go. And immediately they're met by a crowd, a mob, we would use it, full of swords and clubs. They're sent there, by the, led by Judas. They're sent there by the chief priests and the elders. Uh, again, we're told that Jesus, uh, Judas, one of the twelve, Matthew wants to make sure we know that Judas is one of the twelve. He repeats that frequently for us. And Judas walk, has a signal, and he walks up, he kisses Jesus. Jesus they, says, come here with what you do. They arrest him, and then there's a couple incidences which we'll look at. First, let's be clear about who's involved in this scene. Judas and the crowd come from the chief, we're told, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. The chief priests and elders don't show up, they send the mob, because this is a covert operation. They don't want to have, if things go bad, they don't want to be involved. So they send them. Now, if you remember a couple weeks ago when this got started, this, excuse me, this series of events got started, Jesus said, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man must be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus said, I have to die on Passover. Remember? And then a little bit later, we see that the chief priests and the elders of the people, same group of guys, scheme how they are going to covertly plot and take Jesus by, it says, by stealth and kill him. And they explicitly say in that, remember? But not on the Passover. We're not going to kill Jesus on the Passover because we don't want to riot on our hands. Problem, Right? Well then, thank you, Judas, for stepping up and dealing with the problem. Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests and Pharisees and elders of the people and said, hey, do you want me to give them over to you? What will you give me? And they chose 30 pieces of silver. Judas, one of the twelve, is the linchpin to make sure, ironically, that Jesus dies on the Passover. Fast forward, here we are. Judas, Judas shows up. He's one of the twelve, and he's back, and he's now called not just Judas Iscariot or Judas one of the twelve, but he's now called the betrayer. The betrayer. Now, verse 48, now the betrayer had given a sign saying, the one I will kiss will, and seize him. Judas is, 
is, was his role was to identify Jesus by kissing him, giving a kissing, a greeting of kiss. There's debate over the significance of this. Maybe um, it actually was a, a not unusual greeting to, to kiss someone in greeting, especially if there's affection or commonality there. It was a normal greeting. Maybe this, this is the way the disciples greeted Jesus often. Uh, maybe he, they wanted him to do it, so thinking they were going to be covert, he would greet Jesus warmly so that they wouldn't, Jesus and the disciples wouldn't run away. Maybe, okay. Um, um, maybe because it was night and dark and they weren't sure. Uh, it's in the garden. There's just torches. They're not sure. Make sure you rest the right guy. Maybe, maybe. Uh, uh, um, what we do know is that the only person to be arrested is Jesus, not the disciples. They're free to go. He's there to arrest Jesus and Jesus only. Whatever the reason, that's where he was. That's why he used that sign. And, and with him was that great crowd. They were from the chief priests and the elders. That's why they're sent. And again, we see here in this passage that Jesus is in control. His disciples, not so much. He says in the end of verse 46, let, Rise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand. Uh, they didn't sneak up on Jesus. They didn't catch him off guard. He knows they're coming. He stops what he's doing and, and comes and meets them directly. And Jesus said to him, Friend, to Judas, Friend, calls him friend, Do what you came to do. And then they came up and arrested him. It's as if Jesus gave them permission to do that. And then one of the twelves acts quickly and rashly. Go be surprised there, right? Draws a sword and he strikes a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Matthew does not tell us who this was. Again, Matthew leaves the name of a person doing something out. Because Matthew doesn't want us to focus on the person. He wants us to focus on the event. What happened? Somebody, one of the disciples, pulled a sword and, and strikes at Jesus. And why the servant? Not Jesus, I'm sorry. At the servant. At the servant. And why the servant? Well, maybe because he was the closest person. Um, maybe because he was the leader of it. He's a servant of the high priest. Maybe he was one in charge. So this disciple decided, I'm going to go for the, the lead guy. And if I strike him, they all disperse. Whatever the case may be, we don't know. Maybe he's thinking that if I draw my sword and start, the other, the other disciples will join in. <laughs> Not a smart idea. Or maybe he's thinking, if I start this, Jesus will say, okay, and call in the angels to finish it up. We're not told explicitly why. There's an indication of why, by the way Jesus responds. Jesus, even though this happens very quickly, probably happens in a matter of seconds, Jesus stops it right away. Although, although already restrained, already in custody, Jesus quickly steps in and for three reasons stops the violence. First reason, he says, violence will destroy those who use it. Verse 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Physical violence does not advance God's kingdom. And we could, um, and we could biblically speak, say, neither does verbal violence or relational violence. Violence does not advance the kingdom of God. The second reason is here that Jesus yields his power in order to trust the Father and to do the Father's will. We say, he saw this. Do you not think I cannot appeal to, the, to my Father and he will at once send a number of 12 legions of angels? Jesus is saying, I could. I have the right. I have the authority. I have the relationship with the Father to call in 12 legions of angels, which probably could handle a, a crowd of thugs. 
a little, little overkill there. And yet, Jesus says, I choose not to because it's not the will of the Father. Which is the third reason. He said, Jesus knows that according to the Father's will, he must actually suffer. They need to move forward. We can't stop this. Disciples don't try to stop this. The angels are not getting involved. But you, and he says that in verse 54. But know that, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. Jesus is not only in control of everything, but everything is unfolding according to God's plan. In verse 55, we see this. In verse 55, he says, at, at, the, at that hour, he's already in custody, he says to the crowds, you have come out as, against a robber? Really? The sword, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and, and you did not seize me. Why is that? Why is that, that I'm public in the public, and you didn't take advantage of me then? Let's don't be too quick to just think, well, it's because they're scheming or they were afraid of the afraid. Jesus tells us why in the next verse. Can you put up verse 56? He says, oh, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. All these events, the disciples, the crowd, the, the scribes, and um, the chief priests, elders, all of this is happening because God has planned it to happen, and it's moving forward according to detail. And notice at the last sentence in verse 56, how the scene of the narrative ends. We change the scenes now. We'll pick up next week. Verse 56, at the end of it, then all the disciples left him and fled. The 12 go to 11, the 11 to 3, now there's none. They're all gone. They're not with him anymore. They will not stand trial. Only Jesus will stand trial. The coming events, including the cross, will focus now in Matthew's narrative, but also in, um, in the actual events will focus exclusively on Jesus. And this should remind us of what Jesus said to his disciples way back at the beginning of this when they rejected him, back in the beginning of the passage. Remember? Put up verse 31. In verse 31, Jesus, this is how it started, remember? Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me on this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. That's how he started this event. You will all fall away because of me. He said this not to indicate the possibility of it happening, but the reality of it happening. Jesus does not highlight their weakness of, uh, or their fear, but highlights their involvement in God's plan. Because of me, this is going to happen. I'm the center of this. And to be clear and emphatic, he quotes Old Testament Scripture, the key part of the prophecy is God himself is doing the striking. God himself is doing the striking. But this is not all Jesus said at the beginning of this passage. I intentionally ignored verse 32. Let's look at verse 32. After he said, you all fall away from me because the shepherd will be struck, he says, but after I am raised up, I will give, go before you in Galilee. At first glance, this might seem just like a passing comment, but actually it's a huge promise, isn't it? It's a huge promise. 
But after I am raised up, after I am raised up, he's not doing the raising. He will be raised up. He's promising his own resurrection. He's promising his own resurrection. Remember back when this all started in Matthew 16, he started. He said, Jesus said, from this time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and the elders and the chief priests and the scribes be killed and on the third day be raised again. This is all part of the plan. And even though you're going to fall away, even though I'm going to be crushed by the suffering, I will be raised up. They, I think they missed that by their reaction. And not only that, and not only is this an act of God, he says, he says something even more intriguing. He says, I will go before you to Galilee. Hear what he's saying? I will go before you to Galilee. To Galilee. You all are going to fall away. You all are going to abandon me. I'm going to go to the cross and suffer alone. But when it's over, I'll be waiting for you. I'll be waiting for you, not you, me. Jesus does not reject them. He does not express disappointment in them as he's telling them these things. What does he do? He gives them hope. He gives them hope. Unfortunately, it appears that they missed it. I hope we don't miss it. Even before they fail, Jesus promises forgiveness and reconciliation, and he's going to be waiting for them when it's all over. That's powerful stuff. This promise is not just for his disciples back then, is it? It's also for us here and now. In the gospel, we get the same promises of hope and forgiveness and reconciliation even when God knows that we're going to fail. Even when he knows we are going to fail in our lives in a variety of ways, he already offers us the promise of hope and forgiveness and reconciliation through the gospel. Jesus' disciples' failure, as we said at the beginning, indirectly helps ours because by God's design, their failure moved Jesus to the cross. But at the same time, because Jesus is the cross, we can move closer to Jesus in our failures here and now. The author of Hebrews, again, in chapter 4, says this. He says, um, in verse four, uh, chapter four, verse fourteen, he says, "Since then, you have a great, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast, because Jesus went, He died, He rose again. He's with God, the right hand of God the Father. Let us hold to our confession. What confession? All sorts of confessions. But the one that came to my mind is organized that God demonstrates His love for us in this, while we were still sinners." Still failures. Christ died for us so that we could hope and forgiveness. And then in verse 15 of Hebrews 4, he goes on. For, why? Why can we hold it a confession? For, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you in a time of need here today? This time of your life? Maybe even in these moments, these hours. Are you struggling with a failure in your life? Maybe it's in a past failure. Maybe it's a present failure. Maybe you're even anticipating a future failure. Are you? Are you struggling with an area of sin that you're struggling with and you just can't seem to get victory over it? Does 
You're living for Christ. Your walk with Christ seem powerless and directionless, maybe. It's just stale. Do you even know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you responded to him? Do you expect Jesus to be there for you in your times and failures and struggles? It might be theologically, I understand that, but do you in your heart of hearts know that when you do fail, Jesus is there waiting for you during that time, like he did to his disciples? In that verse he says, Then then draw near at the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help us in our time of need. I want you to know that 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 is the desire of Red Sea, is that you do draw draw close to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace in your time of need, whatever that is and whenever that is. Part of our routine, the rhythm of what we do at Red Sea is we take communion every week. If you are a believer in Christ, you have responded to the gospel message that Christ died for your sins, and you are a follower of Christ, then we invite you. You don't have to be a member of Red Sea. We invite you to come in a few minutes and take, when the musicians start singing, and take communion. Walk up, there's bread uh, and wine and juice, uh, and take it, take a piece. We ask you to go up with other people. You can go by yourself to other people, family, home community, whatever the case may be, and pray together and think about it. We want you to receive the communion of God's hope and forgiveness in Christ. But before we do that, I want to end by just putting up verse um, 16 of Hebrews 4. As I end, I'm going to ask that you spend a moment thinking about that verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Just ask the Holy Spirit, ask God to bring to your heart what you need to hear from him in regards to that verse, and then we'll continue with our time of worship. Let's pray. Pray quietly in your seats. Lord, we thank you for your abundance, mercy, and grace. And it's in that, in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.